This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Energy Sense. As always, I am joined here with Hill Vaden to talk all things at the intersection of energy and the financial and capital markets. It's great to be with you again, Hill. How are you today? I'm doing well. Today is my anniversary. I've been married uh, 13 years today. Wow. And I'm going to guess you're doing something really special, like picking up takeout or going for a walk. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe going for a walk. My, my wife asked me if we should go out and we've got, you know, soccer carpools and having an anniversary on a Tuesday night it is kind of a, a Tuesday night anniversary in a pandemic is you know, not there's not much to do. Maybe we'll watch a rerun on Hulu or something and have you know eggs for dinner. OK, just on TV, though, my latest obsession, this is completely off topic, uh, but Netflix, The Queen's Gambit. So good. I don't have Netflix. Oh, you don't have Netflix? Well, anyways, you you should look. Apparently, it's based on a book. And it's about a, it's a fiction. It's a fictional novel, I believe. But um, it's about a young female chess prodigy. Oh. The 60s. It is so good. I am 100% hooked on it. I'm now on episode four. And there's only seven episodes. So it's going to be, this is is the excitement of my week, Hill. It's um, (laughs) talking about the Queen's Gambit. Um, again it's better better than mine i'm all in reruns and i've been i was talking last week with ed about star trek and uh chris i don't know if you watch chris delucia is joining us today i don't know if you also watch the old star treks but star trek the next generation which i never watched when when i was young and i'm outing myself as being a total nerd right (laughs) it it is the seems to be like the, the most progressive and forward show where you've got all sorts of you know, females and minorities yeah. in positions of leadership, uh, yeah. throughout, which is awesome. It was very progressive. Actually, The Next Generation is the only Star Trek I ever watched, and I really enjoyed it as a kid. And if you want to, okay, let's just out ourselves as complete <laughs> nerds. I also watch Jeopardy every night. I know. Okay. I belong in a senior's home. It's very strange. My grandfather grew up and it's this thing I watched Jeopardy um so last night actually on the progressive string one of the Jeopardy questions it's I I watched the rerun so I can fast forward through the commercials but from last week one of the episodes questions was um how the next generation changed the what's the slogan of um go beyond what is it uh, every go one and beyond there's there's a there's a slogan that's always said in star trek and when it went to the next generation they changed it from being any man to being anyone um which spoke to the progressiveness again of the next generation look at this hill we didn't even expect to have the synergy going on in our conversation today (laughs) (laughs) so so my question for for ed mo who i'm sure is out there somewhere listening last week was whether megan the stallion is a star trek (laughs) Be because she's like the queen of cool right now. Yeah. But Star Trek: The Next Generation is kind of the the, the queen of uncool or, or the, the the magistrate of uncool. But it's it seems right in her Which wheelhouse in terms cool. of yeah. And so I'm very I don't know if she's a listener, but but if me if, if Megan's listening out there and you're <laughs> a fan of Star listening. Trek, 
I mean, you might have been really with us today, so it's possible she's tuned in. <laughs> I hope so. Welcome, Speaking Chris. of which, we have Chris Delusia with us. <laughs> Thank you for joining our podcast. As you can see, um, we love to talk about energy and financial capital markets, but we also like to talk about nerdy things such as Star Trek, <laughs> Jeopardy, and um, exceptional things like the Queen's Gambit. If anybody's not watching it, I, I'm telling you, turn it on. Super good. No, this um, is good. Anyway. I have some ideas for, for the weekend. There you <laughs> <Great>. go. <laughs> the pandemic all sorts of exciting <laughs> So Chris actually is a one of our IHS experts that can speak to all things about the global oil integrated companies. And we're very excited to have him on today to talk to us about some of the strategy changes that we've been seeing happening amongst the group and just generally generally speak to the corporate landscape, something that we haven't spoken about actually in the last few podcasts. So this is something Hill and I both love to talk about. So we're very excited to have you, Chris. Thank you for joining us. No, th- thanks so much for, for having me on. It's, it's great to speak with you both. And Hill, uh, congratulations. Happy anniversary. Yeah, thank you. And you're in Portland, right? That's right, yeah. Portland. So you may be the only oil and gas analyst in, in- Portland. Yeah, it's not a real upstream hotspot. <laughs> uh, that, that's, uh, that's for sure. <laughs> are you able, if you go out with friends in a, in a normal kind of a, a non-pandemic world, are you able to admit what you do? Or do you have to talk <laughs> about sports? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the conversations out here, you know, usually more limited to, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, um, you know, the, the latest, uh, you know, fresh organic food and that sort of thing. And, and the, the best hikes in the area and that, that, uh, you know, that sort of, uh, genre. So, you know, typically keep it in, in that, uh, that realm. Oh, Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But maybe you can start talking a little bit more energy these days and sort of bringing us back to where our topic is here. We're hearing a lot of carbon strategies and energy transition strategies coming out of these big IOCs lately. Can I mean, and something you wrote about recently, which I found really interesting, is it seems as though we're hearing a lot of the same message takeaways, obviously moving towards greener, cleaner endeavors uh, amongst most companies. That's obviously a very important part to integrate into the narratives these days. But um, you actually wrote about how you see Although it sounds like everybody's sort of heading down the same direction, there's actually increased differentiation in the strategies that you see coming at play right now. Can can you talk a little bit about that? That even though it sounds pretty uniform, there's a lot of differentiation of what's going on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I think one of the questions that we've been getting a lot from from clients and and uh, from the companies themselves is, you know, how are these com- companies going to differentiate themselves as they start to, you know, pursue similar tactics as, a, as, uh, as they look to reposition their portfolios, uh, position for the energy transition. And it's, it's, it's still sort of playing out because this is a relatively new phenomenon where if you look back, you know, really three or four or five years ago, this was really a topic that was pretty much just kind of on the periphery for, for most of these companies. You know, there, there wasn't much discussion in the way of low carbon strategies and, and uh, integrating that part of the portfolio into their, their overall uh, corporate structure. But if you look more recently in the last two or three years, that's where you've really started to see uh, a really abrupt shift in, in, for some of these companies in terms of how they're starting to emphasize that that low carbon element of their portfolios. So we're starting to get you know more materiality in terms of where these these segments fit in, um, and we're starting to see uh, a bit more nuance in terms of how these strategies are playing out. And so I think that's one of the things that we wanted to get across was that you know while on the surface it may look like a lot of these companies are all pursuing the same things. There are differences in terms of how they're prioritizing low carbon within their overall portfolios. And then within that, 
how they're looking to achieve those low, low carbon ambitions. So whether they're looking to acquire or uh, develop expertise in-house, um, you know, whether they're, they're uh, focusing on individual segments within the low carbon or, or renewables landscape, or if they're taking a more diversified approach, uh, sort of an all of the above approach, you know, there are kind of interesting discrepancies in terms of how these companies are positioning. And, you know, I think the big takeaway there for the market is that you know, this really creates more opportunity for these companies to differentiate themselves relative to one another. And it creates more opportunity for investors to really start to be able to pursue companies that have views that are more aligned with their own. So, for example, if we have investors that are thinking that, you know, maybe there's a more gradual transition, but they are interested in companies with sort of a gradually growing exposure to the, the low carbon landscape, you know, there are companies that are kind of taking that that more gradual approach. There are others that are taking more abrupt shifts where they're saying, look, we really want to de-emphasize or, or at least start to reduce the emphasis of oil and gas within our portfolios and and quickly increase the the scale of our renewables components you know for the, for investors that see a, a faster transition you know perhaps companies like that with, with those types of strategies could be more appealing so you know I think once you really start to look into what these companies are doing and, and how they're positioned that's where the, those nuances start to, to come about so the, the the gradual question I mean is it your impression that everyone is taking some effort or making some effort to move in this direction and and if some appear to be standing still right now is that more are we interpreting that as being more of a gradual approach as opposed to you know not doing anything at all so when i you know i guess when i think about the gradual approach that that really involves more of a what i'd call sort of an all of the above approach where companies are continuing to invest in their traditional portfolios oil and gas and downstream while at the same time starting to elevate the prominence of low carbon. So for example, you know, I think Total uh, comes to mind as sort of an example of that where they're, they're quickly ramping up their investments in renewables. Um, they're starting to spend an increasingly material part of their CapEx budget on the low carbon segment, but they're also continuing to, to grow their oil and specifically their gas portfolio. So you know, they're doing kind of that, that approach where you know, look, oil and gas is still the core part of the portfolio, but they do want to sort of reallocate slightly over time and, and take that more gradual approach. You know, I don't think there's really, there aren't too many companies that, that aren't doing anything. Um, you know, there are certainly companies that are, you know, focusing, you know, 99% or pretty close to 100% on the traditional portfolio, but it's pretty tough to ignore what's going on for, for any company, regardless of how they're positioning. So even the companies that we say that are, you know, sort of, you know, not really emphasizing this part that's part of the portfolio they're, they're still starting to take into account um, you know ways to incorporate ESG elements into their strategy so you know Conoco Phillips is a great example with the acquisition of, of Concho last week where they they set out that uh, scope one and scope two uh, ambition by 2050 um, you know really sort of the the, the first um, player within the US landscape to set that that net zero ambition over the longer term so you know not a company that we've really been thinking about in terms of you know, investing in the low carbon space, but they're certainly thinking about it. They're certainly um, positioning their portfolio to be able to compete in that type of landscape. And so I, I think, you know, pretty much every oil and gas company just has to incorporate those elements that they have to really be thinking about, you know, what can they do, even if they are choosing to uh, continue to invest in the core business, you know, how can they uh, make sure that they're positioned to, to maintain that, that sort of license to operate over the longer term. Um, you know, even when we think about the majors, one of the things that's sort of been the, the main narrative in the market is that you have the European majors on one side kind of, you know, 
mm-hmm. rapidly pursuing these investments. And then you have the, the U.S. companies that are sort of lagging behind. And I don't think it's really fair to say that they're not doing anything. You know, they're certainly not pursuing these investments as broadly and as um, kind of abruptly as, as their European peers, but they are starting to pursue certain parts of their portfolio to to account for that. Uh, and I think it's just a, a difference in viewpoint over the longer term. It, it's a question of, you know, what's the scope of the energy transition going to be? What's the what's the timing of that? And, and what's the best way to position the company, whether it's investing in the core business for the longer term, if they expect to see liquids demand continuing to grow you know, toward the middle of the century, or if they, you know, some of their peers may think that there's a, a quicker peak in liquids demand that's coming within the next five or 10 years. But even for the, the U.S. majors, you know, there is that emphasis to look at different areas where they might be able to apply their competitive advantages. So well, it's you know, one think- of those. So, so question on the, on the U.S. majors. I mean, there's a part of me wondering if they're approaching it similar to the way they approach shale, where, where, where they let the, the independents really create the space that became shale and, and then got in in a big way, particularly Chevron and Exxon and the Permian, late via acquisition. But it, it, there seemed to be a recognition that doing all the you know experimentation around shale is not within our core capability. So we're going to let somebody else figure it out. And when they do a good job with it, we're going to buy them. And, and I'm kind of looking at Exxon and Chevron in particular now and saying, all right, well, they're recognizing that this isn't their sweet spot. So why get in early, get in late? Whereas others, I think there's a big risk of, Green and I were talking with somebody a few weeks ago, of corporate fatigue, uh, where, where if you get in too early and spread yourself too wide, then you start to you know, handicap yourself in, in, in a bunch of different ways. No, I, I think that's a great question. And it, it, I think that is a, a, a fair parallel here because you know there is certainly the opportunity if if the energy transition sort of plays out more more quickly than these companies are, are thinking, you know, there is certainly the opportunity down the road to sort of acquire and, and make your, your entry that way. Uh, of course, you know, that, that certainly runs risks of, you know, having to, to pay a premium or a higher premium at, at that time to, to get that necessary scale. So there are, are risks to both sides, but certainly if you look at some of the companies that are, are starting to uh, invest now, you know, there, there's, there, there's a question about whether they're getting in too early, you know, whether they're investing at the right time or if they should be, you know, continuing to kind of focus on their core expertise. So that, I think that is a, uh, an interesting question and, and just a, a function of differing views about how the, the landscape is going to play out. But it, I mean, that begs, let's call it the multi-trillion dollar question. How is this all <laughs> getting funded? I mean, we're in a low commodity price environment right now. So it's not as though we've got stellar returns on one side of the business that are going to be fund um, this expansion within the low carbon side of the business and the low carbon side of the business, I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the returns are yet at a place that's, you know, going to be self-funding um, at a great degree. So how, how is that working? Is it just they're scaling back exploration programs and that's where the money's coming from? Is it coming out of the dividend? Like where, how is this all going to work from a financial standpoint? No, it's a, it's a great question, and it is one that these companies are going to have to address. The ones that are spending in scale in the low carbon space, because there is sort of that uh, that disconnect there. These investments are really being funded either from you know reductions in the upstream budget or from cash flow generation from their core oil and gas business. So you have that question as you start to draw down the relative size, either the relative or in some cases the absolute size of that oil and gas portfolio. You know how are you going to continue to fund that that low carbon investment? And I think for those companies, there's the expectation that, you know, now is the sort of the heavy investment period as you as you try to get to that level of materiality where you can start to generate, you know, some cash flow from those investments. But until then, 
um, that's really going to be driven by by funding from the from you know from the the um, the traditional business. So uh, it it will be something to watch going forward to make sure that these companies actually have the ability to continue that investment going forward. And at what point you know does the the pendulum swing where they are able to kind of you know generate sufficient cash flow from that other business to, for it to be self funding. How are you looking at this as an analyst covering these companies in terms of cost of capital and hurdle rates? I mean, am, am I correct that the hurdle rate for some of these quote-unquote green projects is lower than traditional oil and gas, and it helps to, I guess, influence some of the court, the, the executive decisions? Yeah, that that's exactly right, and and that's something that we've been spending quite a bit of time on over the past, you know, twelve or eighteen months, just because that is such a core question. Um, you're looking at a business in in the oil and gas business that is you know traditionally expected returns sort of in the the mid to high teens you know maybe even higher during during some higher commodity price environments uh, and you're looking at a renewables business where you're tending to see sort of the, that mid to high single digit level so there's that mismatch as far as what the companies and their investors tend to expect from this business and what these new investments offer but I think there's a couple things to point out there that can explain where the appeal might come from these from these new investments. And the first has been just the performance of the oil and gas industry over the past few years. So you know, I mentioned that sort of mid to high uh, teens level that that oil and gas traditionally expects. If you look even prior to the 2014 price collapse, we were in a situation where you know high spending had really driven down those those returns to sort of high single digits, maybe low double digits. But you know, as you get more recently, you know, past the 2014 price collapse, uh, we got to a period of you know sort of low to mid single digits, and then even negative returns for a few years there. Um, slight recovery over the past couple of years with you know a modest improvement in commodity prices. But you know, certainly uh, as we look over the uh, over the, the near term, at least with oil prices expected to remain under pressure, there's a question about you know what's the outlook for getting those returns back to you know those those more traditional levels or even even something even if it's not at the traditional levels even something just closer to that uh, and it's 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 certainly a uh, you know going to be a challenge to to deliver on those from the core business even with all the the cost cuts that we're seeing from the industry so so that's one element there the other thing that we do see as a benefit from the renewable side and and we put out a paper last year talking about this is just the completely different i guess returns proposition that it offers in terms of stability through the cycle. So we went back historically and compared returns from oil and gas versus various low carbon segments, including renewables. And what we saw was that, you know, as you'd expect, oil and gas generates the highest traditional returns, but uh, with far and away the, the highest volatility. You compare that with renewables and you get, you know, sort of that, that mid to high single digit level, but with pretty remarkable stability through the cycle. And if you look back even since 2001, if you look at the, the broader industry trend, you have a pretty stable level of returns even through things like you know recessions uh, the eurozone crisis you know various cycles where you know these these returns have proven to be pretty resilient and i think there's real value in that for especially for the majors that are driven you know really driven on a a shareholder distribution proposition where it's it's about growing uh it's generating returns and, and growing shareholder distributions and if you have that stability even at lower levels but that stability that can sort of smooth the risk profile for these companies' portfolios and sort of uh, provide that layer of diversification that can give a bit more stability through the cycle. You know, I think there's a real benefit for these companies in terms of integrating that into their portfolios. There is a question going forward about you know whether those returns that we've seen from renewables will continue to, to stick, especially as we see this huge flooding in of investment into the into the industry. So that'll be something to watch. But at least on a on a traditional basis, 
um, you know, that returns proposition does have some appeal for, for some of these companies. And when we start thinking about all these, obviously all these strategies that are starting to be announced, you know, as we move through the end of the year and um, maybe some in the first part of the, of the new year, what do we think, how, how is the street responding to all of this? Uh, what kind of things um, is being positively interpreted by the street and what kind of things are still not getting much love out there with respect to the share price? It, it, obviously share prices are still all pretty challenged right now, but <laughs> sure, sure. what kind of news flow is helping? Well, so it's interesting because you look at the the share price performance for you know clean tech versus oil and gas, and they're you know two completely diverging trends, right? I mean, you have basically a straight up upward line for clean tech, you know, since the start of the year, and oil and gas is down, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent um, at various points during the year. So, with that in mind, you'd sort of expect to see those companies that have taken a more aggressive approach to the energy transition to have um, you know a, a more favorable outcome in the market. And we haven't really seen that across the board. There might be snippets here and there, but I, I think there are a few considerations that are driving how the market's responding to these strategies. Um, you know, the first is that in some cases, some of these strategies are, are still being outlined. So, you know, we, we've gotten some really good clarity from a few of the companies, uh, especially this year in terms of how they're thinking about low carbon. But I think there's still a lot of questions as far as how some of these targets are going to be achieved for some of these companies, whether it's lowering their scope three uh, emissions targets, or whether it's achieving some pretty ambitious renewables generations targets that we've seen some of these companies put forth. So I think there's some questions about, you know, what does what does that look like for these companies going forward? You know, the other thing is that even though the needle is starting to move as, as far as the investment starting to, to flow into the, the uh, this segment for some of these companies, it's still a relatively small part of the portfolio for for most of these guys. So if we look at the the majors in particular, Across that peer group, we expect that the low carbon segment is going to count for about 6.5% of their total capex this year. So, you know, it's bigger than it was a few years ago. It's a it's a it's a growing area, but it's still relatively small. So, for these companies, you know, really regardless of their strategies, they just haven't reached that materiality threshold yet, where investors will say, "Look, this is a company that's you know starting to perform on their renewables portfolios or or, or whatever." So, you know, until they get to that point, until they hit that materiality threshold. I think it's going to be tough for the market to really give them credit for shifting these portfolios. And then, you know, there's certainly still challenges on the oil and gas side. So it's sort of a, a catch-22, right, where if you're continuing to invest in your core business, if you're ExxonMobil or Chevron, you know, the market's not necessarily giving you credit for that either because, you know, that's still a, cha a challenged environment. So I think at the end of the day, over the next few years, we're going to start to see companies start to execute more on their strategies, whether it's on the traditional oil and gas side or, or whether it's getting additional materiality within their low carbon portfolios. But until we get to that point, you know, I, th I think it's going to be sort of a, a period of a sort of an in-between period where investors are just going to be waiting to see how these play out. Are you seeing anybody's, you, you mentioned there's some nuanced differences, you know, e even within, let's call, call it the, the group of Europeans who are making more of a, a vocal movement. Um, is anything really from your end, catching a lot of the positive attention uh, of investors. I'll, I'll mention, you know, specifically Equinor caught my attention with, I think it's Empire Win, right? And, and they sold down, they got into that in a big way. I think when you and I last spoke, uh, you know, a, a year, year and a half ago, they had gotten into Empire Wind in a big way and then they sold down part of that to, was it Total? Uh, uh, BP. BP. And, and that is not at all, that, that reminded me of how people shale where you know people would get into a big project in a big way and then sell down the risk to a partner 
that's the that's the, that that was the first uh, kind of deal of that you know model that, that I've seen in this you know oil and gas player in Queen. Was that well received? Do we expect that type of thing to be repeated? Yeah, I, I think that sort of thing is uh, just starting to take off now. Where you know, as you said, that that's something that we see all the time with uh, oil with you know upstream properties where you know companies maybe make an uh, make a discovery and and look to farm down some of the risk, uh, diversify the the uh, the risk profile a little bit, and and cash in on some of the investment to date. You know, I think we'll start to see more of that going forward, especially as uh, some of these renewables portfolios get larger in size. Um, right now, they're still in sort of that initial investment mode in a lot of cases. So there hasn't really been opportunity to, to see that just yet. You know, most of these companies are still in acquisition mode as opposed to farm down mode. But I do think we're probably at a tipping point here as far as companies' portfolios getting far enough along to, to see that. And you raised Equinor, um, which I think is a good, you know, sort of a, a good example of what investors might like to see in terms of you know sort of a, a really clear strategy about what the low carbon portfolio looks like and how it fits in with existing capabilities i think for those companies that have that sort of story to tell about you know where can they where can they compete versus peers what's their competitive advantage um how are they going to compete in this in this new you know really sort of new uh market for them uh, i think for those companies that have that that story to tell and, and have those elements to say look this is why we can execute here with this team that we have in place etc uh, i think that will be key to the market in terms of helping them understand you know what what the rationale is what the rationale is and how to um, how to uh, compete going forward are there regional themes in this are there are there regions that we see people flocking to as a, as opposed to some regions over the others or is it kind of just all over the place yeah you know thus far if we look at where most of the activity has been uh, both from an acquisition standpoint and from an investment standpoint it, it's been in europe which you know, I, th I think makes sense just considering the types of companies that are driving the low carbon activity to date. But we are starting to see more activity globally. So the US and, and North America more broadly starting to see some picking up in activity. And we're also starting to see sort of a, an extension of that activity into Asia Pacific and Latin America as well. So you know, starting to get more of a global presence here as far as where these companies are starting to invest. And I do think you know, Sub-Saharan Africa will be an area to watch going forward too as some of these companies look to leverage some of their you know existing businesses some of their existing relationships in, in the region coupled with the fact that there are some some real benefits there in terms of opportunities in the renewable space so i, I do think that'll be an area to watch but yeah thus far it's you know really been focused on on europe but we are starting to see that broaden out a bit and are they are they investing do you think or there's any appetite to just certain parts of the value chain or do you think that they're going to try to capture the whole value chain associated with the renewable space um, do we do we see any trends in that i mean obviously historically lots of times they would capture the whole value chain and then sort of divest of it as as the market matured but what's the strategy seem like there yeah it's it sort of varies by company but one of the themes that we've seen this year with with a few of the companies uh, bp and total in particular announcing their you know kind of updated strategies around the low carbon space um we are seeing a big push for some of these companies towards integration uh, and that's been one of the big selling points as far as how they expect to, to succeed in these new businesses how they can sort of you know compete in the industry and sort of have a potential competitive advantage versus some of the incumbents you know sort of leveraging that that integrated platform and and also that sort of global brand, uh, brand recognition um, that some of the incumbent players may not have. So that's something that we are looking to see, or we're starting to see these companies leverage, whether it's um, 
you know, retail and distribution or in, in a lot of cases trading as well, where some of these companies are, are looking to sort of benefit from the opportunity to take advantage of market dislocations as a, as a buyer and a seller. So I do think that'll be a key area to, to watch going forward. So if we look at the opposite side of that coin, and I was reading in the paper this morning that, that Robert Murray died over the weekend or recently, and he was the CEO in charge of Murray uh, Energy, a coal company. And, you know, he, he apparently, you know, was working to, I learned all this from the obit, I don't know a lot uh, about the history, but he, he tried to find scale within coal as coal was put under a lot of pressure, you know, for, for not dissimilar reasons that the oil and gas is under pressure now. And so he scaled up the company and somebody was, you know, apparently asked him why they, that there wasn't more of a move to diversify. And his apparently now famous quote was, damn it, that's all I know. And so we've seen, you know, some deals in the past week that, that I would put into the day, but that's all I know camp of, you know, I, I need to scale up within the Permian or I need to scale up within Canada in oil and gas to generate the cash that I need to do what, to operate any business that I want to, to operate. So, so if we put ourselves, say, you know, 20 years out and, and look back, you know, we, we're seeing that the European majors were more of a horizontal approach, the U.S. majors with, you know, I'll call it a, a wait and see approach, preserve the dividend. And then we've seen the independents, uh, whether BHP scaling up in Deepwater or Conoco scaling up in Shale, are they all going to work? Um, do, do, do we have more confidence in, in, in one of them? You know, future looking back, what's your crystal ball tell us? <laughs> well, choose, you know, I, choose some winners, Chris. We want you to choose. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely not good at doing that, so I will. Uh, I'll keep it more broad. But you know, I, I think that's that's one of the things that we we really have to see playing out, and it's it's something that we've been kind of looking for over the past few years, and and it's you know starting to to really happen uh, pretty rapidly now, which is that that consolidation across the industry, and, and it sort of builds on a theme that we'd been seeing kicking into gear over the past few years, which was really emphasizing scale and emphasizing core parts of the portfolio. So you mentioned, for example, sort of going back to its core strengths of the offshore, divesting the, the U.S. onshore position to kind of really focus on on what they know best and, and where they can best compete uh, versus their peers. I think some of the other companies divesting their international assets to focus on the onshore specifically. So, you know, lots of examples of companies sort of trimming parts of the portfolio or, or de-emphasizing others to really just emphasize the the uh, the competitive advantages that they have in terms of you know just competing on on um, on key operating and, and financial benchmarks versus their peers through you know just execution of, of the the core business and, and I think that's that that's really been one of the major trends that we've seen is is that kind of extra emphasis on that kind of benchmarking versus peers and, and the way to do that is is just to you know focus on those core parts of the portfolio and be, uh, benefit from um, economies of scale. So that's where the the portfolio rationalization efforts have come in. And that's where more recently we're starting to see that consolidation come in where companies can, um, you know, s sort of just, you know, benefit from synergies and benef benefit from that scale to compete. And I think that's probably something that we're going to see more of going forward, not just in the U.S., but but globally as the competitive environment just gets tougher and tougher. So um, certainly something to watch for. You know, I don't have, I don't have any views about uh, which asset classes or uh, you know companies might perform best, but I, I do think we'll we'll see the the industry get stronger as a result. I mean, it's it's just something that we've kind of needed to see play out, and I, I do think these companies will benefit going forward. Yeah, I think this has been that's probably a good way to put it. That there's people have been looking for this type of activity for you know some time now. 
Um, and I, I think it, you know, at some level, it has to strengthen the, the whole space relative to the competition that was effectively putting everybody out of business over the past several weeks or weeks, past several years <laughs> and weeks, I suppose. <laughs> well, good. Um, well, th I think this is the, the, the beginnings of, you know, the, there's a lot more to discuss on this theme. Uh, and, and I, you know, I hope we can have you back. Um, to discuss more as these things you know reach different points of scale and as we get a little you know, make progress within the crystal ball and, and figure out which of these call it three or four kind of four strategies starts playing out best no well, that, let's that, just be great. honest if the last couple of weeks is any indicator we're probably yeah. going to have a lot of activity to talk about um by by the start of 2021 so we'll definitely have you back that sounds great to me. Happy, happy to come back anytime, um, and it, it's been a pleasure. So, uh, so thanks very much. And we'll certainly be doing more work on this space, uh, both in terms of understanding the low carbon portfolios as well as you know the the kind of evolving upstream portfolios of these companies as well. So, um, happy to discuss anytime. That's great, and happy anniversary again to you, Hill. I hope you, yeah. I hope you have an amazing Tuesday. <laughs> Live it up. We will. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Chris. Thanks, thanks very Chris. much, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. See you soon. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.